Hey there, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. Well, good evening. Uh, welcome back. You know, we are back in action. Uh, we were supposed to start out last week, but I hope you guys enjoyed, you know, uh, Christmas break round two, right? Six days, snowmageddon. So look, I had a good Christmas break. Um, hope you guys did as well. We are so grateful for you guys to be back here in Birmingham, and we are grateful for another semester of Oxano. So welcome, welcome. Uh, I had a good break. Uh, I got to travel a little bit, right? So uh, whenever I travel and whenever I get on a flight, there's nothing that I love more than a plain movie, right? Not like a boring movie, but a movie you watch on the plane, right? Because I'm not, I don't have a lot of time during the semester. I don't have a lot of time during the week to just check out what's going on in the film world. So I use this opportunity on a plane to catch up on all the latest Marvel and to distract myself from the fact that I am 30,000 feet in the air with only six inches of plastic between me and a free-falling death. So sorry to ruin your bliss, uh, but that is what I like to do on a plane. I like to waste time by watching a plane movie. But here's the thing about my movie-going experience is I am terrible at movies, right? I am absolutely terrible at Movies, And what I mean by this is that I can't piece together what's happening in the course of the film to where I can understand what's going on, right? So my tastes, my wife calls my tastes uh, dad TV, right? That, that means uh, like guns, you know, fight scenes, the CIA, right? A uh, weary and world-worn detective looking for redemption in one last case, right? These are what I like to watch, right? Because it doesn't take a lot of thought. It doesn't take a lot of analysis on my ends, right? So I'm pretty bad at movies. But does, uh, does, does anybody remember uh, like high school, high school literature class? You remember high school literature class? AP? Any AP lits out here, nerds? No, I'm just playing. Uh, high school literature, right? You're reading a story and your teacher goes, guys, pink ribbons. The girl in the story, she's wearing pink ribbons, right? What do we think it means? Anybody? Pink ribbons, right? And then, like, your classmate, you know, real brainiac, 36 on the ACT type, he raises his hands immediately like, well, you know, obviously the pink ribbons are a sign of innocence and courage and standing up to darkness in the face of great danger, obviously. I don't know. Could, they could just be pink, right? Could just be pink ribbons. It's not a big deal. Maybe it's not that deep. So, I am not very good at movies, right? And so I love a plane movie. And so I won't spoil this movie. I was watching on this plane, on this particular flight, right? So, so I'm, I'm watching Leonardo DiCaprio, okay? And he is about, he is the whole movie, been the good guy. And at the very end, in a spectacular act of betrayal, he betrays the person that's closest to him in the movie all over money. All right, so if you can put two and two together, maybe I did spoil it, I don't know. But I am in disbelief. I am shocked. Could not see this coming. I'm hunched over, right, on my frontier flight, 
uh, hoping that the window doesn't rip out and staring at my little phone as I'm sharing my AirPod with my buddy who happens to be Jacob right next to me. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I cannot, can't believe he did that. Can't believe it. And Jacob looks over to me and is like, dude, I can't believe you didn't see this coming. Like this, this, this guy, like the very first words out of this character's mouth were, I love money and I will do anything to get it. This character told us from the very beginning what he was about. And so it's no surprise that when, his, when push came to shove, his actions followed suit. He told us what he's about from the very beginning. And so just like Jacob mentioned earlier, this spring for the first half of this semester, we're going to be walking through Jesus's book of signs, right? The gospel of John is divided into two major sections. The first 11 chapters are commonly known as the book of signs. And in them, John is pointing his lens to show us seven miraculous acts, seven miracles, seven acts of new creation, all pointing us to the reality of who this person, Jesus from Nazareth, is. He points his lens to show us what exactly this character is about, all so that he tells us in John 20, verse 31, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So this is our charter for tonight. This is our charter for the first couple months of the semester. And before we embark on our journey together, let's go to the Father in prayer. Heavenly Father God, you are good. Lord, you are good and worthy of our praise, God. And you are so good that you have decided to step into our world, into our brokenness, into our hurts, into our pains, and to demonstrate who you are. God, to perform acts of healing, to perform miraculous signs and wonders that cannot be explained. God, you do all this so that we might see and perceive and know who exactly you are. You are the God who sees us, who beholds us and smiles in Christ. So God, I pray that we see that God in your word tonight. We love you. Thank you. And all these things we pray. Amen. Okay, so... Scene one. Here we go. Look with me back in verse one of chapter two. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever it is he tells you. So the beginning of John is Jesus' travel log over the beginning days of his ministry. So we start day one, John one, in steps John the Baptist. Y'all know John the Baptist, right? John is living in the middle of nowhere, in the desert at the River Jordan, baptizing people who would come to him who, to have the external sins that they have committed, the shame that they are carrying washed away. And one day, the scribes and the Pharisees, right, we talked a lot about them last semester in our first sermon series, they come to him and they ask him, yo, John, are you the guy we're supposed to be looking for? Are you the Messiah? 
Are you the one that we have been waiting in hope and expectation to free us from the oppression of this cruel system of government that is Rome? Are you here to liberate and free us? Because if you're not, then get lost, pal. And John says, no, I'm not, I'm not that guy. But I am the guy who's going to come before him. I am the guy who's going to level the path and make straight the way so that the king of glory can come. And what happens the very next day is he sees Jesus walk up to him and it's like the clouds split open and a dove descends. He says, here he is. See, the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they like, you know, uh, myself when I did D now a couple weeks, right? And my seniors decided to go prank uh, like the entire town of Vestavia, right? They left the party too early just like I, you know, was not doing my job and supposed to be watching them, right? They left the party too early. And John is beholding Christ and he's saying, y'all have left, here he is. Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Here he is right before you. Day two. John is still at the River Jordan, although this time he has a bit of a different audience. Instead of the naysayers of the scribes and the Pharisees that come to him and are questioning him, he has two of his own disciples with him. And he's repeating the same phrase of adoration and praise to Jesus when he sees him again. Although this time his disciples, when they hear and see and they follow, they look at Jesus themselves, they, they hit the transfer portal, right, faster than like Alabama's roster, you know, in the last couple of weeks. And they decide they are going to follow this guy instead. Look, it's a joke. To, I laugh to keep from crying. But that's what happens. The disciples leave and they go to follow this man, Jesus. And Andrew, being one of them, runs all the way back to town and finds his brother Peter exclaiming the whole time, we finally have him. Here he is again. The Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Day three. Day three, Jesus and his small batch of disciples, they decide to go around the surrounding area to fill out their roster with some, some local talent, right? And they, they come across this guy named Philip, right? And Philip has the same exact reaction to Andrew the day before. And he runs back into town and he grabs this guy, Nathaniel, and is like, dude, look, we, we got him. Here he is. We found him. But, but Nathaniel's pretty skeptical, right? He's like, nah, sure about that? Sure you got the right guy? And Jesus meets him. And immediately Nathanael sees and is convicted by this God who has seen him, as Jesus says, under the fig tree. Nathanael is, is face to face with this God who is the connection point between heaven and earth, who is Jacob's ladder himself, who is the one who has wed the two together and who is God in the flesh. See, Nathanael is persuaded and convinced when he sees the God who sees him and who has seen him and known him and loved him despite his skepticism. And on the third day, they come to a wedding. The third day, they come to a wedding. Now, uh, I've been to like quite a few weddings in my life. Right? If you guys, you guys are like, you know, if you're seniors in college, right, you guys are probably going to start seeing some engagements. You're going to be asked to be in the wedding party. And I found over the course of the weddings that I've been in, right, there's like three levels of like relational status you can have at a wedding. And that really will color your entire experience, right? So you can, you can go to a wedding and you can be like an absolute pure and true just guest, 
right? You have very little connection to the bride and groom. You maybe don't know the family that well. Maybe you're a coworker, right? But you just go and you don't know a ton of people and you stand off in the corner and you hang out by yourself and you feel like a loser the whole time. And then you probably will leave early into the reception, right? I've been that guy before. Me, I have. It's true. The second level of uh, of relational status. You can, you can be like an acquaintance or right, a distant relative, right? So you're kind of obligated to be there for the whole time. So you go to the ceremony, right? You know enough people that you can get by, you hang out, have a good time, cut up, whatever. And then you, you, know, you send the couple off into the world with like sparklers and confetti and it's, oh yeah, great. We took pictures and now we're, we're good, right? And then the third, the third level of relationship you can have is you can be a friend. You can be a friend or you can be like a close family member, right? And your whole job, if you are a friend, maybe you're in the wedding party, maybe you're the the maid of honor or the best man, right? Your whole job in this situation, this role that you have is to make sure that everybody else has a good time, especially the bride and the groom. Because when you're a guest, you can just go to the wedding and enjoy the party and the festivities, and you can leave having had a nice time. And when you are an acquaintance or family member who's kind of distant, you can stay to the end and you can send the couple off into the world, but you get to leave. But if you are a friend or in the wedding party or a close family, well, then you are there to clean up afterwards. And this is the exact situation that we come upon when we find Jesus' mother Mary in verse 3. If you look there, Jesus' mother Mary is desperately trying to help this bride and groom figure out this terrible tragedy that has struck. They have... No more wine. They have no more wine. And so she comes to her eldest son in verse 4. She comes to Jesus, and Jesus gives her a response that is as surprising to us as it is relatable. And it's simply this. It's like, Mom, Mom, why don't you put the work down and just enjoy the party with us? Not everything has to be taken care of right now. Put the work down and have fun with us, please. D.A. Carson, he is a New Testament scholar. He's written a ton of uh, information, a ton of commentaries and resources on the New Testament. And probably the Bible that you have in your hand is part of, partly made because of the translations that he has provided over the course of history. And he makes this observation that all throughout all the Gospels, Jesus is creating space between himself and his family members. All throughout each gospel account, Jesus is busy creating some distance between himself and his family. And so in this verse 4, it's surprising to us because it seems cold. It seems like Jesus is like giving his mom the cold shoulder. But I think if you look at it a little bit more deeply, and if you think about it from this perspective, it's almost as if Jesus is saying, look, mom, like, I love you. I love you. But my time has not come. What you're asking me to do right now is not part of the glorification plan that my father has laid out. And when that time does come, Mom, you, even you, must come to me in faith. There is no inside track to my mercy. There is no ground on which you can stand before me. Mom, I, I, I love you, but this is the way it is. You too must come to me in faith. And if you notice in verse 5, this is exactly the approach that Jesus' mother, Mary, takes. She, she might not have known where the wine was going to come from, 
right? She might not have known how exactly Jesus was going to fix the problem that she brings to him, but she did know her son. She knew that her son would honor her. And so she grabs all of the servants there, all of the waiters, all of the, uh, the, the hourly workers. And she says, look, whatever he tells you all to do, I don't know how he's going to do it. Do whatever he says. Do whatever he says. Cut. End scene one. All right. Back to verse six. We're going to start scene two there. I'm going to read it for us. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they took it. So what we have going on here, right? We open up this scene to six stone jars that are standing tall in the back room of the wedding venue. And you might be asking yourself like, okay, like, cool, big stone jars. Not really sure what the importance of that is, but great. Glad they have them in case we need a lot of liquid, which in this case we kind of do, right? And so Jesus is bringing them our attention to the Jewish rites of purification, right? And so in our day, right, when we think about washing ourselves before a meal, right? You think about washing your hands with soap and water, right? Maybe you're a kid and you didn't like to, uh, you know, do the like happy birthday twice or what is, it? is that? Happy birthday twice, I think, underneath the hot water, right? We wash our hands as a way of removing germs, right? And filth and just the interactions with the world that you don't want to have put inside your body. And it's not actually that different from an interpretation of what these people thousands of years were up to. These people, as a matter of health and hygiene, yes, were washing their hands, but it also has a ritual significance. We find this throughout the Old Testament in places like Leviticus 11, where the Old Testament people are called to rinse themselves and to cleanse themselves before partaking in a meal because you want to remove the sin and the stain and the interactions with the world in a spiritual sense before you partake in a meal of God's provision and his kindness to you. And so it's no surprise that these jars are here in accord with Leviticus 11 and the covenantal responsibilities and all these laws and rules that the Old Testament people had to abide by. But here is the thing. With a lot of dirt, you need a lot of water. With a lot of filth and a lot of germs, that's a lot of cleansing. And so for all of these guests at this party, and all the way back to Adam, to Cain, to Abraham, and to Moses, and to David, and to all, each and every generation of Israelite history is grappling with this question of cleanliness. Each of them washing, rinsing, and repeating in search of a state of ultimate purity. And so tonight, I think a question that the text poses us is simply this. It's how do you get clean? How do you get clean? Maybe you all are feeling that, that weight of dirtiness. Maybe, maybe you feel like you have to scrub out a, a spot on your reputation that just won't come out. Maybe you are so consumed and concerned with the cleanliness of your image before others or the reputation that you carry before others or what your name means to somebody else that you can't carry that weight. Maybe You've whitewashed your life to the point where you don't even recognize yourself anymore. Are, are you trying to solve for your shame? 
Are you trying to, to put your shame somewhere where it can finally get clean? How is it? How do you get clean? This is a question that is not new with us tonight in this moment, but is a question that all throughout the Old Testament we find. We find people wrestling with their condition of their cleanliness, and we see God finally give them an answer through the prophet Ezekiel, beginning in chapter 36, verse 24 and 28. See, up until this point, the Israelite people are asking this question. Look, I, I, I got to wash myself, right? I got to undergo these ritual purifications. I got to do all these different things so that God will be happy with me. But here's what God ultimately says to them. He begins in verse 24. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. And I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. And you shall be my people and I will be God. How do you get clean? Because what Ezekiel is pointing us toward here is the clear truth that, that your water just won't work. Your efforts to scrub out your name, your efforts to wash away the external shame of the things that you have done, your efforts to cleanse yourself, ultimately just like Washing your hands repeatedly in the winter, right, creates dry and cracked hands. When we wash ourselves under the loads of these external washings, we ultimately just harden our heart to stone. When we solve for our shame and our own strength, we turn our hearts to stone. I think two experiences highlight this this idea that we're circling right now of, of how do we exonerate ourselves from our guilt and our shame, right? And, and, and one of those is simply this, right? Have you ever experienced a line, a lie, rather, uh, gone awry? I didn't mean to make that rhyme three times, sorry, <laughs> right? Have you ever experienced a runaway lie, right? It just gets away from you and you are trying to cover it up with, with more ridiculous and more uh, complicated implications to the point where you don't even know what's up or down or left or right anymore because you are so spun up in the complicated web of stories that you've laid out to cover something shameful that you have done. Or have you ever had the experience of, of feeling the weight of something bear down on you? You, you know that what you are about to partake in is probably not the best thing for you, and it actually might hurt somebody else. You feel the weight and the, the call of a better decision reaching out to you, and you, you plug your ears, and you shove down that feeling of knowing what you're about to partake in is not edifying and building up and good, and you go forward anyway. And, and maybe you've, you've justified that with some petty little excuse, right? Like, hey, I'm, I'm going to do this thing, but I will, like, just text my, my friend, be like, hey, man, like, really messed up. Can you pray for me? Or, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this thing, but I'm just going to reach out to my parents, and they're going to help me, like, bail me out again, right? Or 
I, I will tithe. I will go to church. I will show up. I will do whatever it takes to scrub out this guilt I know I'm about to feel. But you do it anyway. Sisters and brothers, this is what the Bible says is hardening your heart. When we, when we move forward in these decisions, when we shove down the weight of truth on ourselves, when we curve in on what we know to be the right thing to do, this is a condensing of our mindset that ultimately leads to hurt, shame, and inevitably death. This is what it means to harden your heart. And so Jesus tells us, right? He shows us this scene at the wedding venue behind the curtain. And we see these big stone jars that are full of water. And he's showing us that, look, these people have plenty of water for washing. But what I am about is entirely different. What I am about is entirely different. And so what does he do? He gives a set of instructions, right? He says, hey, go take these jars, fill them with water, right? And, you know, just like that, look at these split, the hourly laborers and the waiters, they do just that. And then he says, okay, now draw some out and go take it to the wedding coordinator, right? The master of ceremonies. And boom, just like that, they do it. And now, scene three. Look with me in verse nine. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. We open scene three. The wedding coordinator, day of coordinator, right? The master of ceremonies. I imagine he's standing there, right? Still cup in hand and like, you know, red residue kind of dripping off of his lip. And he looks up and he is uh, confused. And his confusion quickly leads to frustration. And he calls the, the groom over and he's like, yo, buddy, what's your problem, man? You, you hired me to serve the wine of this thing. You hired me to run the party at this function, right? So, so not a, a drop of wine, not an ounce of food should have crossed the threshold of that kitchen without my approval. And here we are having wine that, where did this thing come from, hmm? Explain yourself. The wedding coordinator, who was supposed to be in charge of all these things, right? The, the W-9 salaried employee, right? The boss, the head honcho, whatever you want to call him. He is the one who is supposed to have the honor in this situation. And what does he end up but embarrassed? He had a job they failed to do, and he doesn't know why. But the servants, the, the hourly workers, right? The, the lower class day laborers, they knew where the one head came from. They knew because of their simple participation in actually bringing the water into the jars. And more than that, right, the, the honored one ends up embarrassed. But more than that, the embarrassed ones end up honored, right? The bride and the groom had committed a devastating social error, right? They, they didn't plan accordingly. 
They didn't have enough food and drink to make sure that this party lasted throughout the night. And so now they are in this precarious position of embarrassment until Jesus steps in. The honored one ends up embarrassed, and the embarrassed ones end up honored. And sisters and brothers, this is a a key indication into what follows and is a hint at what Jesus is entirely all about. And it's simply this. It's that Jesus is the transforming agent of new creation. Jesus is the transforming agent of new creation. What do you mean by that, Cole? What I mean by that is that when you add a little bit of salt to food and it makes the entire flavor profile change, that's exactly what Jesus does. When you add Jesus to a situation that is trending one way, everything changes. Jesus is the transforming agent of new creation. And the servants who are the lower ones are invited to participate in the kingdom of God at this moment, right? And then the wedding coordinator is confused and angry and upset. And he accidentally, without his knowledge, utters the entire crux and theme of this passage. And we find it in verse 10. See, everybody serves the good wine at the beginning of the night. Everyone serves the good things at the beginning. When there's not much to lose and there's a lot to be won, but you have kept the good wine until now. And what this wedding coordinator is circling for us is a situation that is ultimately and utterly true of each and every one of us. And it's simply this, is that you and I and every human that has ever lived has been entirely dedicated to our own survival, to our own self-interest, to being selfish. Every human being at our core is entirely selfish. We might serve the good wine at the beginning when we can earn some favor and some clout in your eyes, but when the cards are on the table, then I want the pot, right? I I love what uh, uh, Marshawn Lynch running back for the Seahawks said. Like, I'm going to get mine before I get God. And this is the condition of each and every one of us, at our core, we are ultimately and utterly selfish. Y'all remember back to, to day one? John the Baptist, day one. John is in the middle of nowhere by a river, baptizing those who would come to him who are earnestly seeking to scrub their shame from their life. John is baptizing, wearing funny clothes, eating nothing but honey. He's not eating or drinking or partying or having any fun at all, but he is solely dedicated to baptizing. And his naysayers are saying that he has a demon and there is something utterly and devastatingly wrong with him. And we who come have a similar experience. We come to the waters oftentimes to try to scrub ourselves from our shame and to find a place to put it because we can't carry the burden. But here's the good news of the gospel tonight is that Jesus' baptism is not of water, but it's of the Holy Spirit. Jesus' baptism is not of water, but of the Holy Spirit. See, we come like those who came to John, oftentimes to God, trying to scrub away our sin in our own efforts. We try to immerse ourselves in a water of our own design, but what Jesus is here to do is he is here to immerse us in God's kindness. He is here to immerse us in God's grace. See, God has delighted to immerse you 
in his grace through Christ. God has delighted in Christ to immerse you in his grace. And see, Jesus, those same people who were uh, accusing John of all kinds of things, right? Those same people accused Jesus of, 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 of a similar but equal and opposite accusation, right? Where they called John saying that he has a demon. These people said, look, this Jesus guy, he is a drunk and he is a glutton. He is a friend of tax collectors and a sinner. But what they didn't realize is that the wedding party had started. They did not realize that the wedding party has started. So, this is the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana and Galilee, and he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him, and this is the whole point of the signs. This is the entire reason why we are taking the time to study these seven acts, these seven scenes, these seven uh, miniature short films, if you will, in the first half of John. Because by seeing who Jesus is, by seeing what he is about, you might believe. And that in believing and trusting, you might have life in his name. That through belief and trust, you might have life in his name. And we see that this is obviously the case of the disciples in verse 11, right? The disciples believed in him. The disciples believed in him, and as such, they entered into the life they found in his name. And if you continue reading through the Gospels, and if you look into the book of Acts, you find that these very ones were transformed by their trust in Jesus. They were transformed by their trust. See, if you remember back to Sunday, right? Uh, pastor David, he's the, he's the head pastor here at Dawson. He preached a sermon in Acts 2. And if you were there on Sunday, you remember that Acts 2 is the detailed account of the day of Pentecost. And that's just a fancy word for saying the day of first fruits. It was a ritual in the calendar of the Jewish people. And it is a celebration of the harvest. It's a celebration of food coming to life. It's a celebration of God providing and being kind yet again through a new year and a new season. And what happens on this particular day of Pentecost is the disciples are waiting in Jerusalem just like Jesus has instructed them to do, to wait on the Spirit. And all of a sudden, a mighty rushing wind breaks out as if, and it's swirling all around them, as if it's the very breath of God breathing new life into a new creation. And all of a sudden, tongues of fire appear and they begin to rest on each and every one of the disciples, burning away the impurities of their heart and guiding the way forward to the way and the truth and the life. And all of a sudden, the disciples are beginning to speak out the gospel and the good news of Jesus. And all those who would hear are perceiving their words in their very own heart language. And the crowd that is gathered there with them in Acts chapter 2, verse 13. They, they mock and they make fun of and they say, these men are filled with new wine. And they don't realize just how right they are. And then Peter stands and he delivers a sermon to them saying, look, these men that you suppose are drunk, that's not the situation here. This, what, what, what you see happening is what the prophet Joel says in Joel chapter 2. He says, look, these, in those days, 
God's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And young men are going to see visions, and old men are going to dream dreams, and God's spirit is going to pour forth on male and female alike. God's spirit is going to come, and it's going to empower his people, those who trust in Jesus, to proclaim the good news of God's word throughout the world, that the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. So line up the bottles and let the new wine flow because the true and better bridegroom has come. See, Peter took God at his word here. And the disciples took Christ at his word. And this is the invitation that is extended to each and every one of us here in this moment. That when you trust in Christ, when you trust him, your decision-making framework changes entirely. In that micro moment of crisis where you say, will I do this or not? You can trust that you have a dynamic ability to make a new choice. Because if Jesus has died, and if Jesus has risen, and if Jesus is seated at the right hand of God, has all authority and power and dominion over every square inch of this earth, well, you don't have to be afraid of looking out for your own good. You can trust and depend that maybe you don't have to fight for your survival. You don't have to do what's good in your eyes. When you believe in Jesus' name, when you are joined to him in faith, We are empowered by his spirit to walk in his way as fellow agents of new creation. We get to partner in his body and his work here on earth, and we have a role to play in bringing the light about, of being transforming agents of new creation ourselves. And so, from the very beginning, in John chapter 3, verse 29, John the Baptist, again, he, he, he circles and foretells this very thing, right? He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. He must increase and I must decrease. And so from then and that point to the full and final wedding feast of the Lamb, when heaven and earth will be wed and we will be participants in the eternal life, in the eternal world of God's eternal generosity. And just like David put it this Sunday, right? When everything that is sad will ultimately and truly be untrue. When every wrong that we have suffered will be made right and death and pain and destruction themselves will be humiliated. When water is fully turned to wine, Till then, Jesus is a transforming agent of new creation. And this he told us from the very beginning. Amen. So something we do here at Oxano is we, after a sermon, we, we like to take 120 seconds, right? And essentially what this time is for is a space for you to reflect. And the reflection is really simple, right? I'm not going to ask you to like do a deep dive of your soul and just start like, taking out all the garbage that's down there, right? But it's simply this, it's to to ask you two questions, right? What is God saying to me in this text? And what do I need to do about it this week? What is God saying to me in this text? And what do I need to do about it this week? Let me pray for us.
Lord, you are good. God, you are good, Lord, and your steadfast love endures forever. Father, I pray as we reflect over your word, God, as we consider the claims of Jesus here in John 2 in this acted parable, what D.A. Carson calls, this, this show, this demonstration of his character to others and to us. God, I pray whether you would help us to see you for who you truly are. God, aside from our preconceptions, God, aside from our uh, misunderstandings, Father, I pray that we would behold you. Lord, again, the God who beholds us and smiles. So we love you and pray these things in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Oxano Podcast. If you're interested in the songs that we sing, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. We'll see you next week.